Welcome to the Bounty Zero X podcast. I'm your host, Angelo Adam, founder and CEO of Bounty Zero X. Bounty Zero X is a decentralized bounty hunting network powered by the BNTY token. Today is May 22nd, 2018, and my guest on the show is Tom Bean, founder and CEO of B0X, and Kyle Kistner, CBO and operations lead. Tom has spent over 15 years developing and leading teams. He was lead developer at HERE, a multi-billion dollar consortium of German car companies, think BMW, Audi, Daimler, specializing specializing in GPS technology before co-founding B0X. Tom graduated from Georgia Tech with a degree in computer engineering before later receiving his MBA. He built the B0X protocol from the ground up in Solidity, in addition to co-authoring the white paper. Kyle is the lead author and architect of the white paper. He has a master master's degree in computational and molecular biology with PhD track, and his interests include microeconomics. He's been following blockchain with an academic interest since 2011 and has been critical to the inception and execution of the project. He directs his strengths in analysis and th- synthesis towards decentralized system design. Welcome to the show. It's nice to have you guys. Thanks, Angelo. Glad to be here. Yes, yes, nice to be back, Angelo. So uh, you guys were previously on the show a couple months ago and we discussed the B0X protocol. So why don't you give our listeners who didn't listen to the first podcast and aren't familiar with B0X high-level introduction to the platform and what you guys are seeking to achieve. Yeah, sure. So we are a fully decentralized, non-rent-seeking, non-custodial margin lending protocol. And so what we're doing is we're allowing lenders and borrowers to meet together in the decentralized exchange ecosystem and to take out margin loans so that they can leverage positions or short tokens. So. Zero X, they let you go long. Uh, B Zero X, we're going to let you go short. And we're going to let you uh, hedge your risk if you're a market maker. And if you are just an average crypto holder, what we're going to be doing for you is letting you monetize your existing crypto holdings right from your wallet. So when we left off our last podcast, we were talking about some of the unique components which decentralized margin lending exchanges have relative to decentralized exchanges, which don't allow margin lending, and also relative to centralized exchanges. So could you briefly talk about some of the key differences? So obviously, in a decentralized margin supporting exchange, users can short stocks and borrow in order to short stocks and also leverage their positions. So for users and listeners who aren't familiar with what leverage is and what shorting is, it's just shorting means that you profit when the stock decreases. So you borrow stocks when it's at $5 and then sell it and give it back when it's at $2 and you make the difference. So that's shorting. So how many... Or do you think most people who trade short or do you think primarily... Do you have numbers on... What percentage of traders even engage in any shorting? Because it seems like most traders just buy and and hold and don't really understand the concept of shorting. Yeah, I mean, I think there's 
there's some numbers published on like shorts to long ratios. And, you know, overwhelmingly, yeah, people do tend to go long rather than go short because shorting is uh, a more complicated process with, uh, and one of the differences is uh, it has a potentially unlimited downside relative to going long. So that, I think that's one thing that keeps uh, a lot of average traders away from it. But I do think uh, the crypto space, more so than the typical financial system, is a, a lot more attractive for shorters, just because there are a lot of ERC-20 tokens that people suspect are fund- have poor fundamentals. And so on, based on that, I think there's, you know, as they call them, shit coins, shit tokens or whatever. So I think there is a lot of pent-up energy that wants to short a lot of these lower-quality tokens. Yeah, and also, and, uh, also the volatility is there. So there's the potential to make a lot of money on on shorting. If uh, if, a, if a token is fluctuating up and down, it can buy at the at the top and sell at the bottom. It's it's uh, there's a lot more opportunity for that. And that'll that'll kind of help smooth out the volatility in the system overall. But I, I do think that shorting is like is most interesting rather than for the average trader is most interesting for market makers because they need to uh, market makers want to profit on uh, both sides of the spread it's very difficult to do that without uh, the ability to short so having that capacity in the ecosystem will really cause spreads to tighten and more market makers to become comfortable entering uh, the dex uh, liquidity pool so in a sense, in order for a healthy market to operate, there needs to be some ability to for someone to come along and say, you know what, I think this is stock is overpriced right now. And I think that it's should be lower based off of a variety of factors. And in order for true price discovery to occur and in order for appropriate price for an asset to be determined, there needs to be some type of push and pull on both sides of the market. And so in a sense, shorting is the component which will uh, find assist in finding that market balance or that market equilibrium between buyers and sellers. And without that ability to short, it could potentially create a system where there's indefinite upside to the extent that there's more ability for markets to be manipulated than there otherwise would be without a shorting available. Yeah, and I think also, illiquidity is a big consequence of that because when the, if the price is going up, there will be sort of uh, this gap between people who you know think it's worth. It, it's uh, the consequence. The bubble. The consequence of bubble pricing is that there becomes disagreement on what the true value of it is. And then when you have when you have a huge a lot of polarization on the estimation of an asset's value. This can cause difficulty in arriving at like a true market price where everybody, everyone can participate. So when, when there are large amounts of people who don't want to participate, this has, this is like almost by definition, like illiquidity. So I would uh, give an example of that illiquidity. So there's like some of these anonymous betting tokens, like FBET. It doesn't have a market clearing price and the volume is essentially zero because people can't, like the people who are holding and the people who, who are thinking of buying can't agree on what it should be valued. And therefore, 
the asset doesn't really move much as a result, resulting in illiquidity. So that's a big consequence of not having shorting available on the market and price discovery being inhibited, and therefore the uh, market clearing price not being achieved. And so the number of tokens, uh, so first of all, why do relatively fewer exchanges support margin trading? Even those centralized exchanges, I think more, a higher percentage of them are only non-leveraged trading. Is it some, is it simply just because it's technically more difficult to have a trading engine which supports leverage and, and margin trading? Or is there some other reason? I'm going to be completely frank with you. We are not exactly sure why this is the case. We do know for a fact that margin trading is very technically challenging. So, and much more so than just simple exchange of tokens. And there is, there's a lot more risk to it in terms of, say you're an exchange that is hosting margin lending, right? And for some reason, a position blows past margin maintenance and thereby compromises some of the principle of the lender. You now have a situation on your hand where there might be one or many lenders that are very upset and feel, hey, you know, I've lost money and you were supposed to margin call this and you did it. The question could come up like, hey, maybe I should be compensated for what you've done. Maybe your maybe your trade execution engine was stalled. Maybe it didn't scale properly. People like on Kraken had a for before their upgrades had a difficult time getting their orders through. Uh, the the order execution engine was overwhelmed by the people pouring in. So when you have potential problems with scaling and settlement with your order execution, you open up the possibility that people will start like losing money as a result of uh, technical challenges on your own trading platform. And so I think a lot of exchanges maybe don't want to open themselves up to this sort of risk or just any of these sort of situations. So I I think, and then there's also the regulatory aspect of it. When you have margin or any derivative like instruments, and if you're US-based, you put yourself under the jurisdiction of the CFTC and they might not want to invite regulatory scrutiny. On that front as well, and their their position on that is is kind of unclear in this market. So it, I think that kind of scares a lot of U.S. based exchanges, yeah. just because they're lacking the clarity. And a lot of exchanges yeah. have been moving to offshore jurisdictions where there is more clarity. Binance moved from uh, either Hong Kong or, or Singapore, wherever they were exactly. based, over yeah. to I think it was, was it Malta. Yeah, right. So we're we're investigating uh, Malta ourselves. Just because of uh, this sort of lack of regulatory clarity right now. And uh, so just to expand on this issue of the CFTC a little bit, we've actually been talking to a lot of the relays and exchanges and uh, we're, we're getting contraction, a lot of interest. But there's one roadblock in every single U.S. based relay or exchange that we talk to. They ask us, so what do your lawyers think about this? And you know, one of our questions is, uh, well, what do your lawyers think about this? <laughs> <laughs> and the answer is, um, they, they don't think much yet uh, that, that we've seen. And we're trying to open up some lines of communication directly with the CFTC 
to get some kind of answers so that we can move forward. We can, yeah, we can provide that clarity. Some, we want to approach relays and be able to provide the clarity that they seem to be lacking themselves. So, Yeah, so I mean, every, every U.S.-based relay we've approached has just been like, hey, we would actually love to integrate, but CFTC, and we need to figure that out. Yep. So that's something we are trying to pretty aggressively understand and get some clarity on. And I think hopefully some of the relays are too, but I wouldn't be surprised if this issue that the relays are having bleeds over to the centralized exchanges as well. And what are the approximate number of relays out there? Like how many, there's quite a few of them and it's, you know, it's not so difficult, right? To just fork the code and set up your own decentralized exchange. So how many are there approximately? I think there's about a dozen relays out there right now, you know, with various uh, varying amounts of traction. And actually, just before uh, just before uh, this podcast, we got off the phone with a relay that was not U.S. based. It was uh, right. based in Ukraine. And, you know, they said, hey, yeah, they, they we don't have said any they're not They're not issues. hindered. Yeah, they basically said they're not hindered at all. So they can, I mean, they can integrate and it's not, they're not worried about that one bit. So, yeah. So, yeah, the solution right now is to deal with and integrate with relays that uh, are not worrying about those, that sort of regulatory uncertainty. And do you mind me asking where you guys are based? Are, are you in the U.S. or are you? Uh, we, we are currently headquartered in Atlanta, but we have uh, started investigating our options with regard to moving overseas, uh, just so we, uh, just right. so we it's know a, what's going on in a regulatory, uh, yeah, in a regulatory sense, because it's, it's all pretty unclear right now. And that makes us nervous. All right. So let's talk about each of those issues in, in order. So we're, we've broken down the project into multiple phases. So we have the first phase of the project, which is coming to a completion. <laughs> And what would you say was the a summary of this milestone, which is coming to a close, which you would... Uh, sure. Yeah, it's so, so the phase, phase one was building out the core protocol, which we've done. We have our smart contracts fully working. They're deployed to Robston and, and Coven. And as we mentioned, we're going through security audits. So once that's complete, we'll deploy to mainnet. And also along with that, we've built out a JavaScript library Kind of similar in the vein of ZeroX, how they have their JavaScript library that allows the relays to integrate with them. We have one that will allow relays to bring uh, margin lending and shorting to their decentralized exchange. And we also have our portal that also integrates with our, our smart contracts and uses the, our, the B0X library on the back end. Yeah, so yeah. users can so, go check out the portal now. It's live on portal.b0x. Dot network. Right. Yes. So we've got all sections of the portal up and running. We at first had uh, just the ability to make orders, take orders, and then we uh, created the ability for, uh, to like take zero X orders and take uh, Kyber network orders uh, right. to manage margin positions. And then we created a section <clears throat> that allows bounty hunters to uh, m- monitor uh, margin positions and execute margin calls. And then Lastly, we created a section that allows lenders to uh, monitor their open loans. Right, right. So when 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 loans are when tokens are loaned out in our with our protocol, the trader can go to our portal and take bring zero X orders or take Kyber orders and actually short their token. 
And then, you know, they'll, they'll, have to, they'll build a withdrawal profit that's made and the lender can withdraw the interest that's earned. And, uh, you know, and obviously bounty hunters, like Kyle said, can will monitor and they liquidate and they get rewarded for their for liquidating unhealthy positions. Mm-hmm. You know, why don't we talk about the how the platform works now in terms of the bounty component to it? Because the way that you have built the system is such that bounty hunters report when margin position is going to uh, require liquidation. And so the bounty hunters are responsible for making that determination and closing out open trades when they fall below certain margin levels. Is that correct? Right, right. So yeah, the bounty exactly. hunters can bounty hunters can run scripts on their end, or I mean, or they could just go to the portal and do it there. But if they're running scripts, they would basically be doing calls to their local Ethereum node, you know, gas-free calls. And you know, once they found a position that's nearing liquidation or at liquidation, they call into our contract and actually call the liquidate function. And we verify it. The contracts verify to make sure that position actually should be liquidated and then liquidates it. And bounty hunter gets rewarded for that with a gas. And, you know, and, go ahead. Oh, so, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just saying, yeah. And they're, and they're rewarded with a, uh, a refund of their gas fees for that transaction and, and a bounty reward. And from a, an economics perspective, why is there a need to have the bounty hunters perform like, all competitively performing this rather than keeping that in the under the purview of a centralized party? Is it because it's a decentralized network and it should be rely on a decentralized mechanism in order to operate? Yeah, so th- that's a, that's exactly what I was uh, trying to get to next, which is a, a system is only as decentralized as its most centralized component. Right. So I would say that when you look at different margin protocols that are emerging, the number one thing you need to drill down on and understand is how are they performing their margin calls? Margin calls are the hardest part of this whole project. If you didn't have to worry about margin calls, you just have a centralized escrow contract with some logic for dispersing interest. So you have to look very closely at that. And we're the only margin lending protocol that is, I would say, fully decentralized because all other margin lending protocols either offload it to a central party, like maybe the relayer. That's like a possibility with, say, DYDX, or they offload it to the lender themselves as either the only person, such as with DYDX, or as the bounty hunter of last resort such as uh, with Lendroid. So we think from a user experience perspective and from a decentralization perspective, it's incredibly important that there's not just one central party enacting the margin calls. That really defeats the whole purpose of what we're doing here, which is having everything run trustlessly. Right, right. And the, the Bounty Hunter Network is there's zero barriers to entry. Anyone can run scripts on their end or they can monitor it in the portal or a relay could, I mean, could be one of the bounty hunters. We're just not centralizing it in that where they're the only bounty hunter or the lender has to monitor their own position. Although the lender could monitor their position as a bounty hunter with our protocol. So it's really anyone can be a bounty hunter. Yeah. I mean, the lender could, but the question is, would they want to? And we right. emphatically right. think, no, they wouldn't. That's a user experience nightmare. Right. Um, 
And that, that kind of leads to the next phase of our project and is why it's interesting and, um, and why, why it's possible, I should say. So because we have fully decentralized the margin calls, that opens up a whole new vista where we can actually tokenize the margin loans. And tokenizing the margin loans is just really exciting for us because this just opens up so many new possibilities. So we're calling them iTokens. And the idea is that you have, like, say, Ethereum or DAI or something like that. You throw it into the iToken contract. You get back IF or IDAI. And just holding it pays you interest. And this this has really exciting possible integrations with, with other infrastructure projects and protocols. So essentially, any time... Um, and actually, we were talking to the MakerDAO guys, Gregory uh, DiPricio. I think he's a head of business development. And he actually pointed out this use case to us. And it, it kind of uh, blew our mind uh, a little bit. And so the idea is that anytime you're collateralizing a position, there's no reason you wouldn't want to use the iTokens to collateralize it. So like, say you're going to open up a MakerDAO's CDP and you wanted to, right now they accept ETH, right? Instead of just collateralizing it with ETH, you could collateralize it with IETH. And as a result, accrue interest on that collateral that's locked up, thereby offsetting the stability fee that you'd have to pay. So, I mean, you can really imagine that anytime somebody is uh, using a MakerDAO CDP, they'd want to be using our iTokens in order to offset the stability fees and kind of lend it out behind the scenes. And, you, know, you can imagine, you know, Ethland, any Salt, Dharma, any project that uses collateral could really benefit from these tokenized margin loans as the collateral itself. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. you know, we've talked to the head of risk management at the MakerDAO about it. They don't seem to see an issue with, with this from a, from a risk management perspective. So we're we're very excited that this seems to be an extremely uh, viable method of offsetting yeah. uh, the interest fees associated. Yeah, I want to ask you to to break some of that down. But before we get into that, I just want to take one step back and go back to the bounty hunters' role. Oh yeah, sure, sure. So with the bounty hunters, so what is the protection against the bounty hunter? Incorrectly liquidating a position that it shouldn't so we, be liquidated. We so we that that's where the oracle comes in. We have oracles. We're integrated with oracles that for price discovery and the liquidation. So we would when when somebody tries to liquidate, we call out to the oracle, and we could be connected to say three different on-chain dexes that we can actually do that allow price discovery. It's very limited right now, and what in the on-chain dexes that. Uh, you can actually trade with on chain, but these dexes that we're integrated with, we call it and we see what the price is, and uh, we basically check the position to make sure it is actually unhealthy to uh, before the liquidation happens. So there is a verification process uh, before liquidate. Yeah, so there's actually. like a gatekeeper. Exactly. Like First, the Oracle acts as a gatekeeper in order to repel any malicious liquidation attempts from bounty hunters. Yeah, exactly. And then at that point, we draw liquidity from whichever uh, on-chain decks 
will benefit uh, the trader and lender most. So when you say draw liquidity, uh, we're talking about closing out the position and, correct, and correct. where we are drawing liquidity is uh, like a, a, a nice term to describe that uh, process of closing out the position and then using one of those providers as the source for the counterparty that is necessary to close out uh, whatever position. So if that is exactly, yeah. long, then it means... Uh, you know, buying back whatever is needed or a short or, you know, selling whatever is needed. Yeah, right, exactly. Right. And, we, and, once the, and we, you know, and we take great steps to make sure the lender is made whole. And if the, we liquidate some of the collateral that the traders put up if, if needed to make the lender whole. And we also have a guarantee fund if, you know, in the event of a, just a flash crash or something, some event where the market falls too fast, then we have a guarantee fund to ensure lenders get back what they've, they've lent. Yeah, because we want in the vast majority of circumstances, there's not going to be any problem right. with the lenders getting their money back. But it's it's really these uh, like right tail events that could be of uh, some concern, and that's why you steadily accrue uh, money. So we we take a ten percent fee from the interest that lenders are generating, and we yeah. just put that aside for them. Yeah, this 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 fee is not controlled by us. We don't. That doesn't go towards us at all. We don't pull from it. it it's totally for insuring the the lenders. Yeah, so it goes into a decentralized insurance fund that uh, is going that uh, basically the payouts for it are automatic. So yeah. we we only cover margin loans that have certain parameters. So, and this is just to ensure that the guarantee fund doesn't get slammed with all, you know, if we allow people to, you know, have margin maintenance, like 1% and our initial margin is 1.1%, the guarantee fund could conceivably uh, keep getting depleted. So it's really, it's really just a risk management exercise to make sure that the guarantee fund is only really used in extreme circumstances. So, right, right. We don't, we don't want um, the, uh, margin maintenance to be too low, and we want the gap between initial margin and margin maintenance to be wide enough to uh, to provide some protection there. Yeah. So initially, we're so okay. We'll with when you look at centralized exchanges like Binance, they require that positions get liquidated when margin maintenance hits about fifteen percent. Now, since we're using blockchain settlement, we are going to be uh, having margin maintenance that's insured by the guarantee fund be about 25% and initial margin at 45%. And uh, we're launching it first in a, in a closed beta, and we're going to monitor how this does and make sure that these are actually uh, workable parameters for the system. Yeah, these would be these would be parameters of the the oracle that can be adjusted in a decentralized manner. So there's decentralized. I don't know if we. We didn't touch on the uh, governance of the Oracle, I believe, but with well, the... In our last podcast, we talked about how there can be any number of Oracles that right. are used to liquidate the positions, but you guys initially will have a standard Oracle. Correct. Which yeah. Then plug into. And, and so there's, there's basically when the bounty hunters are getting paid and then people are getting their gas refund back, we send them, instead, we send them a token that's one-to-one redeemable for ETH called the sugar token. And what that does is it just gives you a little bit of governance power over the Oracle. So eventually, as people use the Oracle more and more, the governance will get distributed uh, among the people that are using it. 
the relevant stakeholders and they will be able to vote on, on what sort of initial margin and uh, margin maintenance is needed for the guarantee is needed to be covered by the guarantee fund. But like the thing is, you can Oracle, even if your parameters are not inside um, these initial and margin maintenance uh, requirements. The only catch to that is that we can't guarantee you. We can't say, hey, you're definitely not going to lose money because you have insurance right here. And right. there's actually a, a second layer to the insurance, the decentralized insurance fund that we're exploring. So we talked to the uh, EtherRisk guys and we're having a call with them uh, pretty shortly about possibly adding decentralized reinsurance on top of the insurance fund. That mm-hmm. way you've kind of got like a double layer of insurance. So you can really sleep well at night and knowing that if anything happens, you will be covered. And so EtherRisk is a company that's developing a solution for decentralized reinsurance that can be used as a tool for other platforms. Yeah. So they successfully put out um, like flight delay, decentralized flight delay insurance, but they are like developing a whole suite of different decentralized insurance products. And uh, we had met them at a conference and talked to them. And they thought that uh, there could be some synergy between our projects. And we agreed. And we talked about forming a working group uh, or joining an existing working group that they had and uh, exploring uh, reinsurance as the option to just really, really guarantee that all funds on the platform are completely safe. So what is going to be your target for calling for needing to dip into that insurance fund. So depending on where the Oracle sets the safety threshold, it'll either be more safe or less safe and need more or less of a well right. If if there's fund. if there's some and event so, yeah they can they can yeah. also vote on the fees that the Oracle is collecting as well. So that'll that'll have to be all kind of calibrated together. The more risky you make the Oracle the more the greater the amount of fees that you will probably have to collect and um that, right yeah. but as far as dipping in it's if a if a loan if if the collateral that's put up is completely wiped out because of some unexpected event that's uh some rare event then then we will dip into the then then the lender is made whole by pulling from that guarantee fund yeah, and that's a completely automated process. We don't, right. we don't have any sort of control over that fund in any way, shape, or form. There's yeah. sometimes people have a misunderstanding about that. Yeah, but that so, would be yeah. Like yeah we say when we say yeah, like we say ten percent fee, but that's not a fee that's paid to us. That's a fee that goes to the guarantee fund. And so, is this going to be one guarantee fund for all of the trades that are ongoing and outstanding in the platform, or yes. are they going to be like separate funds? Well, it, it's it's a it's fund for one our well, for our oracle. We we do have the we did talk about last time how we had uh, we allow other oracles to plug in and they can have their own terms. But if they're using the the BZRX oracle or flagship oracle, then the, the fund covers that. What would be the token or asset that makes up? The fund is it the Ethereum or is it just whatever is the the trade is opened up in? Uh, so yeah, it's collateralized half in Ethereum and uh, half in the B zero X token. So that means that when a trade is opened on margin, fees are generated from that margin position or interest is paid on it, and ten percent of that interest is used to purchase 
uh, ETH and B0X, which is then moved into the fund? Correct. Right. Cool. Yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a more obscure part of our token model that we don't really talk about as much. We mostly focus on the governance aspect and how the fee token paired with the governance causes the protocol governance to converge over like a representative uh, sample of stakeholders over time. But yeah, there is also a kind of interesting mechanic that we put in there that we we sort of de-emphasize for the most part, which is it's a little bit it, there's there's aspects of the token burn in there, but it's still used, so it's not really it's not really a token burn either. So mm-hmm. it's just a, it's like a novel sort of token mechanic that we uh, sort of implemented, but we are not like shouting about the rooftops. Yeah, I mean that's it. Well, it's kind of a necessary function, but it's also a little bit in the background and not the people just want to know how what it does, not how it works. And so right. now, now for for this, so you mentioned this token burn component that this. I mean, it's not, it's not it's like a quasi token burn, right? It's not. I mean, it's getting locked up in the guarantee fund, but it could get paid out. So, so is it locked? So you have the one guarantee fund, and then is this constantly accumulating and never? Yeah, every every interest interest is always ten percent is always being taken and and fed into the fund. So it's it's constantly accumulating. Yeah, and then you know as the as the use of the protocol uh, increases, you know, it's going to be a lot more in terms of loans to be covering with the fund. So we think pairing having the fund increase and. You could you could conceive of trillions of dollars going through these contracts. So yeah, uh, eventually this guarantee fund will need to be extremely large in order to keep everybody with peace of mind. Yeah, I mean, I would think had had you considered that another there's probably downsides to it. Uh, but of you know once a position has been closed, then just returning the the funds that were drawn out for the guarantee fund back. To the token holders, once the when it's once it's no longer needed to secure that trade, you know, as a guarantee fund. We we definitely consider that. The only concern with that is that the amount of think about like first of all, the amount of interest is pretty small compared to the amount of principal that we're having to guarantee, right? Right. And then on top of that, we're only taking ten percent of that interest, so. You're talking about like, you know, over time, it's not very much that's going to accrue to the guarantee fund. So we can't insure, you know, thousands of dollars of pennies. And, you know, in, in, in the innovative insurance, like insurance premiums aren't usually returned. So it's, it's like everyone is paying into this insurance fund for using our protocol and it kind of ensures uh, everyone is funds are kept safe for everyone. Yeah, it would, it just, it wouldn't be workable if we did that. That was, that was our first, our first thought because obviously we want to preserve as much value for the lenders as, as, as possible. But we also have to balance that with the fact that it, it would be impossible to actually guarantee people if we just kept giving it back. Oh, that's very interesting. It's great to dig in and, and see how all the different components in the system are. Working together. So for the the insurance portion of it, we said that. Well, actually, we said that. So there's going to be a, an interest rate, and so 
that interest rate is going to be set by any of the parties involved. So it could be high or it could be low. So is, is, so what will be, what will some of the factors involved be? So for why a margin, the interest on lending out tokens to margin traders would be high or low. So one, so that would be obviously like the supply and demand of how many people are exactly to, to win out when, but is there any and other there's, components? And there's underlying, I mean, everything ultimately comes down to supply and demand, but then there's the question of what is determining the supply and demand, mm-hmm. right? So what, what are, what are like the most important factors in kind of outlining that? So in the interest rate, there's built in to some extent, expectations of price movement. So I'm going to give an example from the securities world. So Sears stock, right? SHLD. It was a dying stock and everybody knew it was dying, right? So you would think to yourself, okay, I can make free money by just shorting Sears stock. I might short it on leverage. And a lot of people were shorting it and often on leverage, which led to some pretty vicious short squeezes at times. Uh, <laughs> but the what a lot of people were not taking into account, or maybe they were, is that the interest rate for borrowing the Sears stock so that you could short it was often in excess of 140% APR. So, so the interest rate had built in ex, like everybody's prior knowledge that this is a horrible stock and is going down the toilet. So that's that's going to be a big factor involving the supply and demand because if you're loaning out your Sears stock, right? But you have to you're you're also in a sense making a bet that this Sears stock is going to lose less than the value that I'm going to get from the interest. And that's going to make very few people want to go hold Sears stock and be long on it. And that's why the interest rate is going to be high because it's a supply and demand issue. So I think these are, or that's one of the largest sort of influences on the interest rate, which is basically some measure of expectation of what the future price movement is going to be like. Since you know, the market likes to be efficient and not just hand you free money all the time. <laughs> yeah. So the bounty hunter needs to call out to the oracle. So why does that process need to be done manually? Why can't just the why does there need to be someone watching it to manually call out to the oracle that when margin falls between below a certain level? Well, well, smart yeah. contracts need to be called. So it, since this is the the positions are escrowed on chain, then position it, there needs to be somebody calling in and triggering to check position. Is it is it healthy? Does it need to be liquidated? So we, smart we contracts off- don't trigger themselves. Right, right. So we we offload that onto the bounty hunters, and they they can call in. You know, they can basically call in for free as much as they want because they're calling their local node. It's not going to cost. They're not doing a transaction. It's just a read only call into the contract to see, okay, is this position healthy? And then they're only paying Ethereum gas costs when they when they actually call liquidate. But we 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 refund that anyway at the end of the transaction. Yeah. So I mean, if we the idea is that the smart contracts can't really figure out what's going on in terms of the trades and the positions and the values. And and I mean, if if it did, 
this this would be incredibly costly in terms of gas. You could just imagine running through a huge list of thousands, tens of thousands, millions of trades, and just crunching lots of numbers and just uh, consuming all the gas in the world. So this is uh, it, it was it was totally non viable to have uh, this sort of computation happen on chain. Uh, it just it just had to happen off chain. Yeah. So and why is it free for the bounty hunters to make this call? Well, if they're if they're calling like their uh, their Infura node or their their local node, they're using they're using MetaMask or some other provider for Web three. They can they can just call their local node. They they're, they're just doing a read only call. They're saying look up uh, if this check if this position is healthy, and they'll get back a uh, this should be liquidated. They can get back the actual margin level, and then they only trigger a transaction when they're when they're ready to ready to liquidate. So when they trigger a transaction, it's not free, but they get a bounty that compensates them for it. And then, of course, Ethereum only charges you for like computations on the world computer, not just not looking at what's happening on the world computer. So long and short. And yeah. the front end interface for the bounty hunters to manually do these calls is this. This isn't currently live. It's not built, right? It is. It is. They can go to the, the bounty section of our portal and they can see a list of, uh, of loans and um, it, it'll show like what the current rate is and they can refresh that and that does another call into the contracts and returns what the, uh, the margin level is and if it's healthy or not. Okay. Yeah, we, we anticipate that this will be a somewhat competitive process. People will vie for to call it the fastest and figure mm-hmm. out ways to cycle through the list the quickest and um, so though people are incentivized to develop scripts to do it more quickly than just uh, going to the portal and clicking a button or something like that as it is now. Yeah, yeah there's actually a, a function. This is a more primitive, right. <laughs> more, like it's unlikely that you're going to be winning many bounties in the future when you know bounty hunters are like coding it up in C or something to juice out every millisecond out of it. Yeah, yeah, and, and the contract actually has a function you can call just to get back a current list of of loans, and you can you can kind of cycle through if you're you're hitting constraints where there's if there's thousands of loans in there, you're not going to pull them all back at once. So you can kind of feed in like a start and end parameter to know, okay, I want to pull the next block of next hundred loans or something like that. So we make it easy for them to pull out the loans they need to monitor and then to actually monitor them. Yeah, so this is in itself is going to be a whole other component that is going to become presumably pretty competitive if in volume it pays out a small amount. And whoever has the can call that liquidate the fastest will be incentivized to do it faster than the next person. Exactly. And potentially somebody can build a whole business around this. They have, there, there's thousands and millions of loans in here that need a monitor. If they have a really and unique system of you know, doing this the fastest they could you know build a business around it and so just to reiterate, although to be honest we are hoping that you know it'll be so competitive that the bounty will kind of equilibrate to around the marginal cost of it you know that's the hope but that's that's sort of the optimistic free market equilibrium theory right yeah 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 so just to reiterate so that fee mechanism is coming from is coming off the interest from that's collected from so that that ten percent, so the lender they get interest, right? So that uh, extra money they didn't have before, and so, so we just take that ten percent cut. Part of that gets divvied out to the bounty hunters, 
part of that gets divvied out to uh, people who paid gas, like to take the order. Yeah, yeah. I guess I guess we didn't clarify that the one. guarantee fund. Exactly. We didn't. We we kind of glossed over that. But yeah, it is that that ten percent component is is divvied up and used for all those payouts. And then it's adjusted accordingly. Right. right. How did, how is that reward amount adjusted? Like, what is the mechanism so, through which you can adjust that? So through the decentralized governance of the protocol, there's going to be essentially ability to vote on like the compensation coefficient, so to speak. So we dynamically compensate bounty hunters based on an exponential moving average that we construct that is built from data that we scrape from everyone who's not a bounty hunter that interacts with our protocol. So when you try to initiate a transaction in order to withdraw interest, we are going to take note, our our contract is going to take note of how much gas you used and go, hey, someone was able to mine a transaction with that amount of gas. Then we put that into our exponential moving average. And every time somebody takes an order, we go, okay, that amount of gas was able to uh, successfully be mined. So we're going to go ahead and put that in our exponential moving average. Well, yeah, the, ga- the gas so, cost. The gas cost is being saved. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, somebody, you know, if if you know everyone's putting guay. twenty twenty guay or whatever, that we're keeping that and feeding that into an exponential moving average. So that's how we determine what the the current, I guess, market rate of of gas cost is. And then there's a scaling coefficient that we're setting it first, and then we'll be decentralized. That will sort of determine, you know, so like you can imagine it's like 20 way. And let's say the, the scaling coefficient is like 1.1. So the bounty hunter receives a bounty of total 22 guay. Okay, so we're oh, wait, just, at- one, just one more factor on that. We also, the idea, we wanted to really mimic the experience of exchanges. Like we don't want, because, you know, people have to pay gas to take a trade or take a, make a trade or to open an order, open a loan on our, our platform because it's on the blockchain. So we also do uh, refund gas to people that, to takers of orders as well at the end. So we're trying to reduce friction uh, as much as we can, but at the same time, we don't completely refund the gas right. just because of the possibility that this opens us up to an attack where, you know, somebody's taking a bunch of orders for free, canceling it, and drive it and like sort of artificially driving up uh, the cost of gas and our moving average so that, that when they like maybe do some kind of mass liquidation on the bounty side, they get like way more rewards. So that's that's an attack vector which we considered. So we weren't able to completely reduce the friction on that front. We, we did have to. Believe it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so they, they don't get a like it, takers of orders don't yeah uh, don't get a 100 percent reimbursement. They get slightly less. It's kind of like a scaling pro- coefficient in the other direction. Okay, cool. I have an appointment that I need to run to. Um, as much okay. as I'd like to, as much as I'd like to. Yeah, that sounds good. I just had I just had the lawyer like call right now and I had to let him go again. <laughs> yeah, as much as I would like to continue because this is a fascinating discussion. I'll give you. I'll let you guys give you the option. A, we can put this on pause and have a part two tomorrow or whenever you're free, and we can do the second part if there's more to cover. Or other option B, we can end it now and and just uh, get it posted. And we'll do the outro. So I'll let you guys decide which one of those two you want to do. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I think the only thing we really kind of wanted to talk about just a little bit 
I, like I could, I think I could just say it right now is that we are doing a paper reference implementation in Haskell. Uh, I think we're going to be one of the only projects that have done this to allow us to formally verify our code because Solidity doesn't lend itself to formal verification, but Haskell, being a functional programming language, does. And uh, we think, and this is one of the things that we're hoping to have done before we do our full open mainnet launch so that people can really be comfortable that this is the highest level of security that you could possibly ask for. Okay. All right. Then this fascinating project and really excited to see that you guys are, you know, making progress on it. And uh, for listeners, they can go now to portal.b0x.network to see the uh, current version running the Coven test network and they can try it out and play around with the interface and the bounties will be live soon uh, for users who want to get some tokens and participate, help out the, the project. We really love you. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, thanks for having us, Angelo. Yeah, we enjoyed it. Yeah, it's a pleasure. My pleasure. My guest on the show today has been Kyle Kistner and Tom Bean of B0X, and thank you for coming on the show. It was great talking to you. Yeah, thanks a lot. Yeah, you too, Angelo. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Bounty Zero X podcast. Please remember to subscribe to our podcast below. Check out BountyZeroX.io, the number one bounty hunting platform where you can complete work and earn cryptocurrency. Please consult your professional financial investment and tax advisors before making any investment in initial coin offerings. Bounty Zero X does not provide investment or financial advice and does not endorse or recommend investment in any ICOs advertised on the Bounty Zero X podcast or website.